Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 34 of Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about... I don't even have time to tell you what the podcast is about. If you don't know, you don't know. I just have so much information to tell you during this introduction, and I've got to get started on it. Okay. Um, First of all, today's episode is a bit of a departure from our usual one story about one woman format. Uh, It is an interview. Now, this episode is kind of a meta episode. I've got the amazing author Rachel Monroe on the podcast to discuss true crime, why we like true crime, if it's okay to like true crime, and also four different stories of women who are connected in thrilling and unusual ways to this little thing called true crime. Ever heard of it? So you're getting four mini stories for the price of one. Plus a lot of uh, a lot of observations and anecdotes from a very intelligent woman who spends a lot of time thinking about this whole genre that we're all obsessed with already. I'm pretty sure many of you will have already encountered Rachel's work. Um, do you remember that story in The Atlantic last year about the con man whose female victims came together to take him down? Rachel wrote it. It's amazing. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Um, And now she has a new book that's hot off the press. It's called Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. It's amazing, and we're going to talk a lot about it during this interview. So, other life updates. The reason I'm not doing a single criminal broad story this week is because I have been out of town doing something not podcast related, but very, very special. My little brother, Sammy, just got married this past weekend. It was pretty much the funnest wedding ever, and um, I wore a mustard dress. I was a bridesmaid along with my sister. It was the perfect day. It was gorgeous. It was in California. So Sammy and Linda, congratulations. This episode is dedicated to you, although I'm not sure you're going to hear it because I know the podcast is a little bit too scary for you, which is fair, which is fair. Um, Listeners, if you would like, send some good thoughts or prayers their way, whatever your preference is. Um, They are just one of the most adorable little newlywed couples you will ever meet. Okay, my other bit of news is less personal, more professional. I'm hosting another podcast, a short six-episode podcast that launches soon, and I think you all might want to check it out. It's a podcast from CBS All Access called Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels. You can find the trailer right now on any podcast app. Go listen to it. You'll hear my familiar little voice on it and hit subscribe. Um, CBS has a show coming out that's fictional called Why Women Kill. You might have seen billboards for it already. So this podcast is going to accompany it, but it's going to be nonfiction because that's our thing here. I'll be breaking down six different archetypes of female killers, the Black Widow, the Angel of Death, so on, and talking to some really cool experts about these archetypes and asking basically... Uh, so is this archetype even helpful or is it causing us to miss the point of it all? Um, also to listeners who have heard all the episodes of this podcast, all 34 of them, you're going to recognize a lot of the voices on this new podcast, on this CBS podcast. Anyway, go find it, Why Women Kill, on any podcast app and subscribe and I hope you enjoy it. It launches September 20th. 
final announcement. If you live in New York City, I'm doing an event this October with the host of an amazing true crime podcast called Dialogue at this amazing uh, event space called Caveat. And the event is about, no big deal, like, not to brag, but I think it's going to be pretty cool. The event is about female cult leaders. Female cult leaders. One of our favorite subjects on this podcast. The event is on Wednesday, October 30th at 7 p.m. It's a spooky time right before Halloween. And you can get tickets at caveat.nyc. I'm also going to link to them in the show notes. I'll talk more about this event in the next couple of episodes, but please buy tickets if you live in New York or anywhere near, if you like driving in. Obviously, I would love to meet you. That would be so fun. Um, The event is called Female Persuasion on Women-Led Cults. We are going to also have some cult trivia. Okay, I have to stop talking about this. I've got to get to this interview. I, I don't want to I don't want to make you mad at me by taking up too much of your life. So without further ado, I would urge you to grab yourself an iced coffee or a glass of wine or perhaps a cold tumbler of milk with at least four Oreos on the side, four Oreos minimum, and let's talk true crime and what to do about it with Rachel Monroe. question for you is you the book is obviously concerned with among other things the appetite that is true crime it's even in the title I'm wondering when you started to see true crime obsession this way as an appetite and if you could even sort of describe what this appetite looks like sure it was when I I don't know when I first started paying attention to that that language of hunger and appetite um, it might have actually not been until I was uh, trying to find a book title, um, but then I did start to notice it. It was all over the draft of the book and um, just kind of unconsciously, and then I started noticing it the way that people would talk about, the way that they related to crime stories. Um, there was so much of that metaphor, just people talking about binging and consuming and not being able to resist, and both the, the kind of guilty pleasure aspect of it, maybe a hint of shame, but also like the irresistibility. And also the way that sometimes the those appetites were very quickly condemned or dismissed by people in the way that things that are that women's appetites often are. So it seemed um, like something like a fruitful way to, I guess, frame the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's striking me now hearing you describe the appetite that it's also kind of weirdly violent, like we're consuming, we're devouring. Is there something there that consuming true crime is like odd? I mean, I don't mean to sound insane and say it's close to being a killer, but 
Um, is it fair to say that there's something a little bit violent in the act? I think so. Totally. I think there definitely is. There's like a hunger. It's funny. A friend of mine drew me a poster for my um, book release party here in Martha. And it's like a giant Aww. drooling mouth. It's so good. It's such a good illustration. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you get it. Because there's the, and there is something that is like in that, in that it's a dark hunger kind of thing. The wanting to. Mm-hmm. gobble something up um and and I think that was why that was one of the things that I wanted to definitely address in the book was um you know there's like one strain of argument that's like oh no women uh consume these stories because they want to avoid being murdered by a serial killer which is seems to me it's like that's like treating these stories as if they're oatmeal or a kale salad or something you know it's like oh no I don't really want to eat it but it's good for me and and that (laughs) at least for me bears such little resemblance to my relationship to these stories um you know there's it's like a really uncomfortable pleasure that I get out of them but there's a total pleasure there and I think that has to be reckoned with if we're gonna talk with any kind of honesty about how these stories work for us and work in our brains and in our culture we have to acknowledge that um there's something we want from them and in them yes absolutely I'm glad you brought up the try not to be killed you know thing because I really wanted to talk to you about that because it drives me crazy too um I never know really what to say when people are like so why are women so into true crime so now that I have your book I can you know well as Rachel Monroe points out (laughs) but um but I totally agree. I I feel like I know one or two people who do seem to read about serial killers to gather tips. They're like, okay, I don't get into the Volkswagen and I don't walk down the alley. But most, yeah, for most of us, um, it's absurd to say that we're like studying true crime the way we study history in school because we think we're going to pass a test and that test is don't get killed by a serial killer. <laughs> Do you think there's something sexist or narrow-minded in this meta-commentary around true crime that is, you know, so why do these broads consume it? Right, because, well, there is there is a part of me that always wants to respond when people ask, like, well, why do women like true crime? By saying, well, because people like true crime and women are people, if you hadn't heard, um, you know, like these <laughs> radical, yeah, I mean, call me, I am controversial, but what can I say? <laughs> I'm going to go there. Um, yes. yeah, they're like stories that have captivated us pretty much as long as there has been a mass media. I mean, as you well know, like writing about writing about these people who have, who were like hugely famous, you know, centuries ago, um, mm-hmm. this is like a long standing obsession and, and maybe some of the shock that women are interested in it has more to do with, um, our narrow ideas about like what women are like or what women are interested in, um, than anything else. But at the same time, it is a disproportionately female audience that these stories draws. And so that there is, there is something there. Like it's not, uh, sometimes the question is framed in a sexist way to be sure. But I think um, there also is plenty to dig into there. Right. Yes. And I don't mean to imply there isn't because I feel like your book, your book is digging into that question in a really deep way that hasn't really been done before, which is amazing. Um, 
I guess it's occurring to me that maybe why doesn't anyone ever ask why don't more men consume true crime? Why is it, you know, 90 percent women or whatever the stat is? I mean, do you have any theories why men aren't more interested? Well, I do think that um, from thinking about myself and then also speaking to other women who share the interest, it does in a lot of ways seem to trace back to an awareness of our own vulnerability or, or some sort of preoccupation that, that stems from that awareness of vulnerability. And I do think, I mean, certainly men can be vulnerable, but uh, I think if you grow up socialized as a woman in this culture, you're given, particularly as a white woman, you're given a lot of messages about you know what could happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think these stories are often a way to like work through those those things and I think that you you have to have this blend of uh maybe vulnerability and also like safety I think to a certain extent to be able to enjoy these stories find them pleasurable find them entertaining in some way and um and I think Hmm. yeah I think I I think it's it's that blend of yeah so you're saying in in terms of safety like it's not fun to read true crime if you're actually afraid for your life. Is that what you mean? Like to put yeah, it really I bluntly. Think if it's your if it's your daily experience, yeah. then it's hard to get whatever psychic distance you need to have to find it um thrilling or engaging or entertaining. Um, because it's just maybe a little bit too real. Right. Absolutely. And then on the flip side there is that perpetual fear you know in any woman's life it's complicated um which is why you wrote a book about. and I think these stories yeah exactly and these stories allow us to think about it work through it play with Mm -hmm. it approach it in an oblique way um think through it think around it and so I think that there is there's a lot that's valuable there even as Mm -hmm. like critical as I can be of the genre sometimes um I, I think there's a real there's a lot that it allows us to do and to talk about. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I think about that a lot. Um, Let's, let's get into one woman just to give people sort of an idea of who you're writing about. So you you write about four different women and each one kind of represents an archetype. Is that fair to say of how women are, you know, get involved in true crime? Um, Tell us a little bit about my Shiro, the first lady, this uh-huh. kindly gray-haired grandmother with a uh-huh. <laughs> with an odd penchant for forensics. I love a creepy grandmother. Oh, yeah. It's so funny. I actually just got sent a galley of a of a biography about her Ooh. that's gonna come out in February that looks so good. I can't wait. I'm gonna hang up with you and immediately nice. start reading it. <laughs> Um, but her name is Frances Glessner Lee. This book is, is by Bruce Goldfarb. It comes out in February. It's called 18 Tiny Deaths. <laughs> That's a good um, title. But yeah, she was a very wealthy woman or a woman born into a very wealthy family in Chicago at the turn of the century, the turn of the last century. And um, her father thought that it was uh, inappropriate for young ladies to have a profession or to get a higher education. She was essentially expected to just um, be a socialite, be a wife, be a mother. Uh, And it turned out that she was like pretty bad at all of those (laughs) things uh, to a greater or lesser extent. And, but it wasn't until midlife when, when her 
parents and her brother died and she came into her inheritance that she was, she kind of came into her own and, and blossomed in this very dark way um, mm-hmm. and became really fascinated with the science of forensics, which was then like still pretty emerging and pretty new, particularly in the U.S. And she started out by doing a lot of uh, self-study, subscribing to, you know, like coroner's trade journals. She had a, a dear friend who was the medical examiner in Boston, and she would go hang out with him and just like eat her lunch in the autopsy room. Um, oh my gosh. She eventually befriended a lot of police officers and, and would they would let her like drive around in their squad cars with them. She would listen to the police radio whenever she was at home. I mean, she just loved this murder investigation stuff. And, um, and then when she was in her sixties, she started this project that she became ultimately probably the best known for, which was creating these, the nutshell studies of unexplained death, which are, um, she really got mad if you called them dollhouses, but Mm -hmm. they certainly look like dollhouses (laughs) and that they are little rooms with tiny furniture and dolls in them. But the, the dolls that are in them are all dead and they were, intended to be used as forensic training tools for the police, essentially. So um, the the fear, I guess, at the time, and still now, is that the police would come into a crime scene and make assumptions, be like, oh, this was definitely a drug overdose, this was definitely a suicide, you know, whatever judgment based on the, the person that they saw mm-hmm. in their circumstances. But in these little dollhouses, there were just these tiny little clues embedded um, so if you looked carefully and, and followed Francis Glessner Lee's rigorous scientific method, then you would uh, be able to discern the truth, which is often very different from what it seems like on the surface. So cool. And what I didn't realize until I read her tra- your chapter on her is that the scenes all have an answer, right? Like the crimes have a solution, but very few people know it. Yeah, there are, I think, maybe three or four of them. The solution has been made public, but um, they are still used in training to train police officers. And so for they were on display. The only time they've been publicly displayed um, was last year, maybe two years ago now. They were, they were put up at the Smithsonian, but they didn't put the solutions up, which was really, <laughs> I thought, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, because I think we're so used to, at least with like, crime TV shows and stuff like this, this quest for closure and answers and a solution. And so withholding that, I thought it was actually like a pretty powerful move. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not obvious at all. Like there are a few of them that I feel like, oh, yes, maybe I've solved that. But there are a lot where I'm just like, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, it's so cool. I hope I can see them someday. Um, they sound so creepy too, like miniature little perfect. They're really creepy corpses um yeah I wanted to ask you just uh the the scenes seem pretty graphic right I mean obviously they're dolls or whatever they're not real people but you describe how they're bloated and discolored and there's blood on the floor um I wanted to ask you about you know the graphic nature of true crime like are you someone who looks at crime scene Mm -hmm. photos do you avoid that and is there a like is there a line you won't cross somewhere it's funny. I'm actually super squeamish um, in true crime or in 
you know, fictional films or whatever. I watched the last 20 minutes or whatever of that Quentin Tarantino movie, the mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, I essentially just closed my eyes. I was yeah. like, this, I can't even, it's hard for me to even listen to the oh, sound yeah. of this. I don't, I know some people who really um, can handle it. And I just have a really like physical, visceral reaction. It's not, it doesn't make me better or worse than anybody else. Like, like I'm more sensitive, but I just, really sometimes feel like I'm going to faint. So I don't know. I can't, I can't see it. How about you? Yeah, no, I'm the same. Actually, I really avoid crime scene photos. Ugh. I, no, (laughs) I don't mind so much reading about it. I mean, I don't like it, but, um, but like, I find it so horrifying how much of them are, how many of them are online. And you mentioned that, um, we'll get to that in a second, the Manson murders. But like yeah. I was researching my uh, my pet, Jack the Ripper was a woman theory. And I accidentally uh-huh. saw all these mortuary photos of the victims. They're just, you know, hanging around the Internet. And I mean, they're from 1888 and they're, you know, so they're old wow. and black and white and like maybe shouldn't be scary. But oh God, they're stitched up and their, their faces are all slack. And yeah. So, um, I agree. It's like, no, I don't think I'm morally better. I know some people can handle that, but, and I don't want to forget that crime is very real and these things really happened, you know, but I think I can, (laughs) I think I can understand the severity of these crimes without like staring at the the photos yeah it's so interesting how the how the internet has changed our relationship with crime scene photographs Mm. and yeah that that in the Manson chapter I talk about how how difficult it was until the you know the late 90s basically um there was such a hunger from some corners of the world to see the the crime scene photos of the Manson family's victims um and and nobody had seen them and anybody who had them, they were just like this rare commodity. And now if you Google, I'm not suggesting that anybody do this, but if you Google, not so much Sharon Tate, but if you Google Abigail Folger, who is another victim, it's like, that is one of the first photographs of her that comes up. Um, and it's like, it's just too, yeah, it's too easy to see. It's too easy to stumble on. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it either. It's too easy. Why is the algorithm spitting up these? I mean, it's like, can you? Can there be some parental controls for me, an adult? And it just it just makes somebody's whole life defined by their oh, death in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and maybe that's why. I mean, why would I be googling Abigail Folger otherwise? But um, I don't yeah. know. I don't want it to all be. Yeah, by that. there's a difference. Even, how she, yeah, how she died. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even just aesthetically, it's it's just different to know Abigail Folger was a Manson victim. And it's different to know that and then to see, you know, exactly how she was splayed out on the lawn. I mean, the latter is not really necessary, I don't think. No, it seems like it should be private in a way. I mean, isn't that, it's a, that's funny. Maybe that's a squeamishness in me or something, but that that your idea that your like your death should be um no yeah. not other people's property somehow yes oh i thought it was so creepy how the some german magazine offered a hundred thousand dollars for the crime scene photos yeah I, I think that's how much it was and it's just yeah it's just like a tabloid 
a tabloid desire to kind of know everything, see everything. It does, it does start to seem like not that different from pornography or, you know, Mm. like famous actresses leaked nudes that we see now, you know, it's like, we want to see the thing that we're not supposed to see, see the person in the, in the position that, that should be kept private. Yeah. Those are really, very strange. So your Manson chapter gets into a fascinating discussion of victims' rights, which were not always a thing, we learn. Um, what what led you to be interested in this side of true crime? Well, I had been interested in the Manson family for a long time, since I was a teenager, probably. And, and back then, it was, it was maybe a more stereotypical interest in I, I was never that interested in Charles Manson mm-hmm. I, I still find him pretty boring but um the Manson girls mm-hmm. you know like I think a lot of other maybe gloomy teenage girls wonder you know could that have been me <laughs> right. or something like that um but then as I as I got older I became much more interested in the the aftermath of those crimes and um they were obviously such a big news story and and they've continued to be a cultural phenomenon but the more that I learned about the the political ramifications and the political after effects of, of the Manson murders, the more I found that really fascinating. And I think like kind of under explored. Mm-hmm. Um, usually the story ends in, in 1969 and or maybe 1970. Yeah. And can one, you brief- I think when the convictions happened. And- yeah. Can you briefly um, talk about the political ramifications? Sure. So um the Doris Tate, Sharon Tate's mother, um, after her daughter was murdered, she she was fell into a depression for a while. But then she she kind of emerged from it at the same time that this political movement was was gaining traction, and she became a really important force in in what is now known as the victims' rights movement, um, which had its roots in a lot of feminist activism from the '60s and the '70s, and the idea that you know, we need to, to train the police and the hospitals to respond to victims of sexual assault in a sensitive way. And, and that we need to have rape, rape crisis centers and we need to have public discussions about violence against women, violence against children. Um, but then starting in the 1980s, um, you know, Reagan is president. The, the same language that kind of began in this progressive feminist way starts being co-opted by um, right-wing tough-on-crime politicians. And uh, Doris Tate is a big force in this. She she helps push through um, Proposition 8 in California, the first Proposition 8, which was a big crime bill that um, started this wave of legislation across the United States that, that was under the banner of victims' rights. But what it really was in a lot of cases was... Um, tough on crime, making things harder for people accused of crimes or perpetrators mm-hmm. of crimes, um, ha- allowing more juveniles to be tried as adults, um, three strikes laws, mandatory minimums, all the things that we know of now is uh, that get a lot of criticism as being contributing to the mass incarceration problem that we have in this country. So it's a really interesting, she's a fascinating lady, um, just like a real firebrand. And it's a really interesting political movement that kind of uses the language of feminism um, for that gets like bent to these right wing um, ends. So it's, it's sort of an uncomfortable topic, but one yeah. that I think is really important. And Sharon Tate as this famous, beautiful, blonde, pregnant victim 
is in some ways like the ideal in the, in the Reagan era, like that's the ideal of like what a real true innocent victim mm-hmm. is. Um, and of course that rhetoric of like the innocent victim leaves out the vast majority of people who are actually victims of crime in this right. country. It's a messier, more complicated subject than you would think. Cause you hear victims rights and it's like, Oh, obviously like that's good. And it does seem like a lot of good came out of Deborah Tate's activism, but I'm glad you, you really delve into it and show that it's like, I don't know, it's not so clean cut, um, you know, and also who among us is an innocent victim, really? I mean, right, right, exactly. We can't, dem- it's so unfair of victims to, to put that rhetoric right. out there, you know? Right. It's and like, yeah. So you end up crossing out a lot of people like, oh, you're a sex worker, then we don't need to listen to you. I don't know if you read this article that was in the Atlantic last month, but it was about um, why rape, so few rape cases get prosecuted. Oh, it was so upsetting. There was like this woman who brought a case, who brought charges against, um, made an accusation against a man who had raped her like quite violently. And the this was in Minneapolis and this was recently and the head of the Minneapolis Sex Crimes Unit ran a background check on her, saw that she had a single conviction of prostitution charge from like over 10 years earlier, decided that anything that she said didn't have any merit, did not look into the man who she accused at all, ran a background check on her and not him, wow. and just completely decided that, that like nothing that she could say had meant anything and then the man went on to like rape and strangle several other women before he finally got caught and it's just such an example of if we demand some sort of imaginary standard of perfection Mm -hmm. innocence from victims it makes us all so much less safe because we're not listening to what's like what people are actually telling us. Right. It's deeply ironic. It's like you want to be tough on crime. You want to keep people safe. Then you have to start listening to victims, even if they're not, you know, suburban cheerleaders. Um, I think that was that the article that was full of terrifying statistics on how on serial rapists and how like, yeah, yeah, I can't I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was like these violent rapists are so much more likely to reoffend. I mean, they're like worse than serial killers, it seems, just in terms of right. how many of them there are. Um, and they do tend to prey on the most vulnerable, right? So they yes. prey on homeless women, on sex workers, on women with addiction issues. Yeah. And so if the police or like society in general is not listening to those women, is not taking their cases seriously, then uh, those those serial rapists like keep on serially raping. It's mm-hmm. just so awful and upset. It made me so mad. It was a very good article. It, it was a great article. Mad. I'll link to it in the show notes. But yeah, I remember just being like, what? What? No. <laughs> very, <laughs> very disturbing. And now let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. Listeners, tell me honestly now, would you join a secret society if you had the chance? I'm on the fence. Uh, You know, I kind of want the power that being an Illuminati member would come with, but I also need more information before I join, you know? If you feel the same, then you've got to check out this new course from The Great Courses Plus called The Real History of Secret Societies, created in partnership with The History Network. This course is a deep dive into the brotherhoods, orders, and cults that have played covert 
but secretly major roles throughout history. I'm talking about the Knights Templar. I'm talking about Japan's black dragons. Did you know about them? No. You've got to learn about them. These societies tend to attract some of the most brilliant minds in the world, but as you and I know from our years of true crime exposure, brilliant minds are sometimes also the most evil minds. Now, this course is just one of hundreds of in-depth lectures that you can watch or listen to from The Great Courses Plus. If you want to give it a listen absolutely free, then sign up for The Great Courses Plus using this specific URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads. You'll get an entire month free. That's more than enough time to make up your mind about the Illuminati. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads. And speaking of spooky things, our second sponsor is Harlequin Suspense. I know some of you are big readers, and if you're anything like me, all you want to read come autumn are the sorts of nail-biting stories that pair perfectly with a crackling fire and a huge mug of apple cider. Not that I own a physical fireplace, but spiritually I do. This fall, Harlequin Suspense has rolled out a whole batch of brand new books for you. Domestic suspense, scary things that happen in kitchens. Mystery, scary things that happen in train stations. And even romantic suspense from popular authors and brand new debuts. Just let me read you a couple of these chilling titles. Uh, see if they whet your appetite. The Stranger Inside. Guess who? Now you see me. The Widow of Pale Harbor. The Perfect Girlfriend. So you can check out these suspenseful titles and many more by going to this link, bit.ly slash mustreadsuspense. Or to make it easier for you, you can just go to my show notes and click on the link. Again, that's bit.ly slash mustreadsuspense. Crackling fireplace and howling wind outside your window not included. So, okay, uh, victims' rights. Oh, let's go back to the world of Manson. <laughs> you had mm -hmm. a you had a line that I loved um, describing how the murders kind of, you know, as the cliche is, like, and they were the end of the '60s. And you wrote, "Utopia, it seems, was right next to dystopia." And when I read that, I was like, "Oh, I." That very elegantly, uh, that very elegant phrase encapsulated something I've thought about a lot as I'm mucking through the true crime writing world myself. That in these stories, it's never black and white. There's all there's really good characters next to really evil characters, you know, rubbing up against each other. Or there's killers who are sympathetic and, you know, maybe victims who aren't or whatever. There's um, the uncomfortable truth that some of these really horrible stories are also narratively really amazing stories. Like they just mm. have a rise and fall and they're compelling. Yeah. So I kind of felt like that line you wrote could could apply to the true crime genre in general. And I guess my question is just, what do you think about that? Ooh, I really like that theory. Um, and I think that's like every... Every utopia has a little seed of dystopia hidden within it, mm -hmm. maybe. And, and it also makes me think of um, all those Anne Rule books from the 1990s, which were all, so many of them are about like, oh, the perfect husband who is actually not the perfect husband. Right. Um, you know, anything that, that we uh, 
put all of our expectations on um, is ultimately going to fail us in some way. Mm. Um, and so I think it's if you if you go in allowing for messiness, looking for accepting messiness, hoping for messiness, honoring the like actual messy truth of the world, then I think you can handle it better. But if you, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's similar with expecting victims to be innocent or perfect and acting as though they're somehow betraying us um, when they're not. <laughs> yeah. um, I think just accepting the messy truth of the world gets us a lot closer um, and, and keeps us from, from fighting reality quite so hard. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, so let's go to the third woman that you feature, or the third chapter, um, where you talk about the defender. And can you tell me a little bit about her? And also, it seems like, is this the woman you would say you had the most personal relationship with? Yeah, Lori Davis, the defender, she was really generous with her with her time and her stories. Um, she became involved with the case of the West Memphis Three through, it started out, she, she was a living in Brooklyn. She was a landscape architect uh, who watched a true crime documentary, as uh, so many of us do, um, about the, the West Memphis Three. Uh, although they didn't have that name yet. They were, it was just a, a documentary, Paradise Lost, which later aired on HBO about terrible murder of, of three young boys in Arkansas, and then the three teenagers who were essentially railroaded for the crimes because they were like the local goth. Mm-hmm. This was the, the last gasp of the satanic panic mm-hmm. era. And um, and they were there was like basically no evidence against them other than the fact that they were weirdos. They lived in this town and they were weird. Um, and she became really drawn to one of the young men in the documentary, Damien Eccles, who was on death row for these crimes and started writing him letters and... Um, in some ways their letters are like a real pleasure to read because they're so romantic and almost like a 19th century way because it's like they can't be together, wow. but they're just full of longing and they're just so, um, the obstacles make it really romantic. But then on the other hand, it's like really horrific because the obstacles are the fact that he's on death row and, um, Wow, and in those early letters, they're often like, "Oh, I can. You're going to be out so soon. I can feel oh, it." Oh gosh, and, painful. Um, it's so hard to read them because knowing that it took, uh, you know, almost he was on death row for almost two decades mm-hmm. um, before he got out, and so she ended up just really dedicating her life to him. And um, I remember when I first, before I met her. I knew the story. I knew that she had moved from New York to Arkansas. I knew that she had, you know, left her good job in New York and her whole urban world there to to essentially devote her life to this guy who was in prison, who she, you know, she couldn't really share life with him. And um, and thinking like, there's got to be some like dark twist there, you know, <laughs> like this can't. It had been written about always as this beautiful love story, and I was like, it can't really truly be. But then when I met them, I there's certainly plenty of darkness there. Like he was so damaged from, from this ordeal. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they're just like really remarkable people. Wow. She, and she has this like amazing glow to her. Really? Oh. Um, yeah. I was like, Oh, you really are just like a sweet, selfless, generous person. Wow. Um, who also has plenty of darkness in her too. I mean, I don't think that 
she could have been drawn to this story if she didn't have some sort of affinity for, um, you know, being able to abide in those dark places. And, and this is not to say that it was like in any way easy or smooth for them, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, but she wasn't just remarkable people. Yeah. The, uh, the narrative yeah. around so many women who um, write to people in jail is that they're, they're so weird and I guess the big difference is Damien is innocent if you're writing to Richard Ramirez that's just a different thing but it sounds like she's bucking that archetype maybe or that stereotype I mean yeah definitely and and you know there are other women like that like there I forgot her name there was a journalist who wrote to another man I mean that's another wrongful conviction case but Mm. certain women who um, form these connections with men who were wrongfully imprisoned and, and fall in love with them in part kind of out of a sense of justice, Mm. which is, we don't usually think of that as a, as a a motivation for true love. But um, in these cases, it does seem to be those feelings are entwined like romance and um, the the quest to like fix a wrong in the world. Do you mean like this man has been stripped of so much he's not even getting the chance to love, I'm going to try to write that wrong. Yeah. I mean, which does have a, a romance to it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and then the, the, yeah, the idea that like we can fight this battle against these, these odds, these terrible odds together. Um, and that's, that's part of our grand romantic story. Yeah. Um, it's very- yeah. I guess, I guess I can see how it would be dreamy in its own way (laughs) yeah it's it's very cinematic I'm sure the day-to-day reality is horrible when you're you know trekking to the prison and you only get an hour or whatever but yeah it's like that you definitely would feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself I guess exactly yeah your your love story has that sense of urgency and grandness um that they don't always do in real life yeah. Or in, you know, non-incarcerated life. It's funny because I feel like Bonnie and Clyde also had that sense of urgency and grandness. <laughs> Very much mm-hmm. so. <laughs> Just on the on the other end of the of the yeah, law. Totally. So um let's move on to the fourth archetype, um, because I have a lot of questions about this. The killer, or in in this case, the would-be killer. Can you give us the 411 on her? Sure. So the the chapter focuses on a young woman named Lindsay Suvanarath, who was an alienated young woman who moved back into her parents' house after she graduated from college, didn't have a job, didn't have much of a social life outside of the internet, um, had a hard time with other people, and... um, when she went online, she became fascinated, well, with essentially with like two pretty dark communities. Um, the first one being like the world of online Nazis. And then the second one being the world of people who are fascinated by uh, Columbine. Mm-hmm. And then through that world of Columbine, she met a young man who was in a similar place in his life. And they started chatting on Facebook and uh, through these Facebook chats, they, well, a lot of things happened. They became really close. They became really romantic and they also began planning a mass shooting together. Mm -hmm. And they were in Canada, right? So they were going to 
um, do a she was in trip. Illinois. He was in Canada, oh, okay. and the and the whole dream was that um, she would she would fly up there and meet him, and they would shoot up a mall in Halifax. And I mean, in in one way, it's like uh, it it was interesting to read about it um, and think about gun culture in America. I mean, I live in mm. Texas. I have a friend who has an AR fifteen. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's a world that I know. But it was interesting reading about the, the mass shooting that they planned in Canada because they only had access to Canadian guns, which are so hard to get. And oh, interesting. James's father had had two guns and they were gonna they were trying to plan this massacre with like a single action hunting rifle and birdshot. They had like thirteen, you know, kind of flimsy bullets. Um Wow. And so it's just so interesting to think about how different, even if they had not been foiled uh, before they got going, um, just the amount of carnage that they would have physically been able to enact on the world is so different than if Mm. they had been in the United States and, you know, bought these semi-automatic weapons and that sort of would have been so vastly different yeah that's kind of sickening to realize like just a that's a very stark reminder that these mass shootings are not just contingent on the will of one individual or two it's like the weapons make a huge difference yeah like the tools the tools yeah yeah oh so um she but the shooting did not happen um they were foiled right and then what happened to the this would be Romeo and Juliet or rather I should say Um, would be Eric and Dylan right because that's who they wanted to be yeah the Columbine shooters yeah and and by the end of this the their entire relationship happened over Facebook chat and and it was later entered into evidence so you can read or I could read I did Mm -hmm. read the entire unfolding of this relationship and by the end of it she in particular I mean she's just she was always a person with a very, very active imagination and, and would create these imaginary characters and would kind of act as though they were real or act as though they were her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the end of the seven weeks of this planning this thing together, she was really kind of pretty unhinged and thinking maybe she was the reincarnation of Eric and Harris, of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, um, that they were you know, they were the only, their souls were somehow transmogrifying, oh um, that other people like weren't even real. It got really, it got really extreme, her, her distance from wow. reality. Um, and, and she keeps kind of putting off buying the plane ticket to go to Halifax to meet him so they can mm-hmm. do this. And they're, they're keeping excuses like, oh, I can't do it that day. Oh, I don't have enough money. And at a certain point he gets really frustrated with her and it's like, you, you are just, you're just as much of a faker as everybody else. Like I, I thought I could trust you, but I can't. And so then she's super apologetic. She spends all her money. She's like, no, 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 I'm coming there in two days. I bought a plane ticket. I'll be there. We can do this. We can do our mass shooting on Valentine's uh-huh. day. That was the plan. And, um, it's still unclear who turned them in. There was a crime stoppers tip. Um, the police came to his house, surrounded his house, told him to come out. And he shot himself. And at the same time, Lindsay was flying to Canada and she was met at the airport and immediately arrested. Wow. So she, um, wow. and so it, 
She actually made a move. <laughs> yeah. So that's what, like when you talk about criminal conspiracy, you have to, you have to mm-hmm. make a move, right. To, to actually do something like, but it still was this question of, okay, well, she did buy a plane ticket and she came to Canada. What does that count as, right? Like, would they have mm-hmm. actually done this? Would they have been able to? Mm-hmm how much of it was fantasy, how much of it was reality. How do you charge somebody like that who has fantasized at length about something that they want to do, but not actually mm-hmm. done anything. Um, and I went to her sentencing cause she pled guilty. Um, so there wasn't a trial and nobody really knew how it was going to go. There hasn't been any other case in Canada like this. And the judge ended up sentencing her to life in prison, which was really, I think, quite shocking you know for somebody who never touched a gun in her entire life um but her her fantasies in the in the doc in the document online um were like quite quite elaborate and that ended up counting I guess yeah I wonder if and there's no way to say but I, I I wonder if the fact that her boyfriend shot himself made her sentencing worse because that kind of indicates a seriousness to me at least <laughs> you know if he, he he wasn't yeah right like he was clearly taking it seriously if that was his reaction to the cops showing up I would guess yeah no that's really true and and the judge I thought this was a little bit out of bounds at her sentencing said you bear the responsibility for his death oh yeah um <laughs> And, you know, she still really loved yeah. him in whatever twisted way they loved each other. And I, and, and that seemed to me like a little bit above and beyond. Um, I don't know. As a judge, you get to declare criminal penalties and stuff. But I don't know if you get to say things like no, that. No, that's not the... To- say whose suicide is right, whose fault. Right, and that's fault. not the crime. She's not being charged for that. Like, that's irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She, she I'm sure she feels bad right. enough. I. I I heard from somebody who was in touch with her that she still for a long time afterward had, had photographs of him um, all over Mm -hmm. her cell and, you know, they never met in real life. They chatted Mm -hmm. online constantly, but never met in real life. Did you reach out to her and would, would she talk to you? Uh, We exchanged a few letters. They were all very uh, like matter of fact. Mm -hmm. She's very, she's not, I'm sure you've had the experience of writing to people who are in prison and and sometimes Mm -hmm. you get the sense that they've been waiting for somebody to like spill to for a long time. And, um, she was, it was not bad. It was very interesting. Yeah. I, I am having the worst luck getting con women in prison to respond to me. I was like hoping, you know, the, the con, the con artist cliche is that they're big talkers, but, um, yeah. Maybe that's just the con man cliche. I don't know, because no one wants the chat. Uh-huh. Um, Maybe you seem too savvy. Maybe you should be like you should pose as a lonely man. I should. I should. My name is Richard. And I am a wealthy widower. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about the weird blurry thing that's happening with killers and celebrity. And you see it in Columbine, you know, there are people young people but maybe people of all ages just obsessed with Eric and Dylan um and you even had a line I think in the victim in the Manson chapter about 
sometimes killers get to own the story, which I thought was really interesting because the victim's gone yeah. usually. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on this phenomenon of famous criminals and kind of uh, criminals that are like sex icons? Yeah, I mean, I think there's that there's that way that in our culture we like to really condemn those women that you were talking about earlier who you know, write to Richard Ramirez or marry Richard Ramirez or whatever, like, oh, what's wrong with her? Like, how disgusting. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, it is in some ways just like taking or in the contemporary phenomenon of that would be like these, the women who go online and like talk about how Ted Bundy is hot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find those things troubling, too, of course. But in a way, I think like they're, they're just kind of being open about what a lot of the rest of us are doing in a more circumspect way, which is saying that these men are fascinating because of the really awful things that they have done. Mm. Um, And our culture reinforces that by continuing to make these documentaries and to put their pictures up everywhere and to delve into their background and and try to find out you know try to trace it back and I understand the impulse to do that of course I mean I relate to that impulse to try to find an answer or to master something through understanding it um, or to get close to this like dark side of humanity but at the same time um, you know Lindsay and James definitely had the sense that uh, they made it very clear in their chats that they feel like one way for them to get attention and notoriety and to have people listen to them um, is to commit an act of spectacular violence. Mm. And and they're not wrong, right? Uh, yeah. I think we do it less now than we used to. I think we did learn some lessons since Columbine, but mm-hmm. um, our culture did turn those boys into icons. And um, so when you see teenage girls online who are treating them like, like icons or like pop stars, it's not really it's maybe shocking but it shouldn't be necessarily surprising yeah which is why we need to focus more on the women (laughs) right and exactly and I yeah there's like a line in there which I kind of stole from your book or it's like my one sentence one of my one sentence takeaways from your book which is that we don't do it for the women because they don't have this there's like a swaggering masculine bad boy criminal figure Mm. um that is like a sexy version of a male murderer, but like the stories that we assign to female criminals um, aren't like that at all. We don't. And so they don't get glorified in the same way because they're right. Yeah. We don't put their faces on t-shirts. Not that we should, but <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Right. I guess it's, it's like good. a double, yeah. a bad double standard. I don't know. Yeah. This is perfect. We're ending on a messy note, <laughs> which is, <laughs> exactly. you know, inevitable. All right. Um, I'll let you go. Thank you so much, Rachel. Oh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for your books and for your podcast, which I love so much. Mr. Tamer Man, he whispered in a trembling voice. Tell me, did you ever have a wife? You can tame the wildest beast, I know, but listen, please. There's only one thing now can save my life. Can you tame wild women? Can you tame wild women? You made a fox play dead. I swear I didn't pay Rachel to end on that note. All right, that's it for today, folks. Isn't Rachel so eloquent on the subject of true crime? I really like how she is not afraid to judge the genre of true crime 
you know, fairly and admit her own love of it. I think that that's something we've all got to do if we're going to consume these stories. We got to be thinking nuance. We got to be thinking gray areas, right? I can tell from the notes you all send me that you are all accustomed to thinking this way too. And I think that's really good. Uh, if so, if you liked your thoughts here, please check out Savage Appetites and buy it from your local bookstore if you can, because that would be amazing. All right. You want to support this podcast? Oh, you shouldn't have. Um, you can do so by leaving a review for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening platform. You can support it by telling your friends and your mom and your creepy aunt who's a little bit too into murder stories to listen to this podcast. Or you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash criminalbroads. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash criminalbroads. And this month's patrons or this episode's patrons who are keeping this leaky ship afloat are Christina Kimberlin. Fabulous. Brilliant. Kristen, equally fabulous, equally brilliant, and the mysterious, but surely also fabulous and brilliant, patron known only as Super Secret. All right, check out the show notes for links to everything I've talked about in this episode, and meet me back here in two weeks for the story of a woman who wronged and was also wronged. Hmm, intriguing, right? All right, have a great September, everyone. Happy fall. Talk to you later. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Seeking the truth never gets old Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.